Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. So welcome to the Water Women Podcast. I will get you to start out by introducing yourself with your full name and what pronouns you prefer to use. Yeah. Hi, I am Alicia Emerson and I go with the she, her. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on today and to talk about what you do. But before we get into the extra exciting part about it, let's rewind back to the beginning. And when did you fall in love with the ocean and the environment in general? What made you want to pursue that? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in New Mexico, um, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and it's in like high mountain deserts and the ocean is a very far place, but I can remember being in my elementary school library and I would check out every ocean animal book. And I remember like on library days, I would go to like that section of the library and pull out the marine mammal books and I would memorize their names and the colors and I would try to think about what an animal as large as a whale actually looks like and I don't know I just was so fascinated by the by the animals and just the ocean in general and so I I went to um well, I mean, after I graduated high school, I went to um, a university and I got a degree in biology and I was really interested in studying microbes and I loved microbiology. And so um, after that, I kind of transitioned into um, environmental remediation as a job. So I did a lot of field science work, working in watersheds and um, measuring, um, different types of toxins in the waterways around Los Alamos and the Los Alamos National Laboratory where they invented the atomic bomb, um, is located in, in Northern New Mexico where I grew up. And so I just got a job back at the laboratory. And so I was working with water and, um, doing all kinds of interesting work. And I don't know, this, like, nagging feeling that I still needed to pursue a master's, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so after about, um, I don't know, 16 years of doing this work, I decided to go back and um, get a master's degree at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I had moved to San Diego because I kept visiting there as a holiday and I'm why don't I just live here? I love it here. And so I got a job and then I applied to Scripps and I got in and I did um, the marine conservation and biodiversity degree. It's a one-year master program. And from there, I was living in San Diego, um, right by the beach, going to school. And I got to learn a lot more about the general problems that the ocean faces and the anthropogenic impacts of what was happening. So from the watershed work that I did in New Mexico, and then what I learned in San Diego has really, you know, deepened that, that love for the ocean and all the connections um, that we have to it. I love that. It really kind of like helped strengthen your why, right? Like you started out yeah. with just like love for the ocean and then getting to work on those projects must have just like sold it for you 
Definitely, definitely. And I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why um, I think we go to the ocean as well, or, you know, like to sit on the coastlines or, you know, like to go for boat rides. And um, yeah, there's something very transcendent about being on the water or by the water that just makes your soul feel better. (laughs) I think it's so cool that that's such a universal experience that no matter who you are or where you're from, seeing this huge, huge body of water just evokes emotions. Like no matter what the emotions, like it's impossible to just sit there and look at the ocean and feel nothing. Yeah. 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 And, And mostly, I mean, when I look at it, I don't know if you feel the same, but I typically feel very small. Like it really puts things into perspective when you, um, having a bad day or there's a problem and you look out there and you're like, Oh, actually it's pretty small. (laughs) That's like one of the very first times open water diving. I was like in the water and I was like, Oh my God, I'm so small. I was like, (laughs) I am in like the best way possible. I'm like, I'm so insignificant. And like, to say that thinking to myself, oh, I'm so insignificant, had a good reaction, but it really kind of helps put everything into perspective. Like you said, like just kind of being like, yeah. oh, a bad day is a bad day, whatever. I love it. Yeah. You're like, look at this giant green eel. It's like three <laughs> times the size of me. And yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. focus on this instead of everything is going poorly, which is yeah. definitely fine. Definitely a healthy response. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You see some of, yeah. When you're down under the water, you see some of the, um, fish and sharks and you're like, Oh, okay. I'm actually pretty small. (laughs) What are you doing for work now? Where has your path kind of taken you? Yeah. So I work at the Pacific Northwest national laboratory and, It is located in the Pacific Northwest, and it is one of the 17 Department of Energy National Laboratories. So um, the U.S. Department of Energy um, has these 17 national labs all over the U.S., and they all kind of run different missions, but we also work on multi-lab projects. Um, And specifically, the the laboratory here... um, in Washington, um, there's a couple of um, other campuses and, and labs that are associated with PNNL. And I happen to work at the Marine and Coastal Laboratory in Squim, Washington. And um, so we are part of the bigger PNNL laboratory, um, but most of our work is focused on um, coastal and ocean sciences. So there's eelgrass work and um, biofuel work and a variety of other types of chemistry, um, carbon sequestration. Um, and we're also working on how to enter, how to put in, um, it like energy, energy, um, transmission sites for, um, different types of, um, ocean generated energy. So like powering the blue economy applications and, yeah, so that basically what I do now is I work here at um, the macro campus and SQUIM as a project manager. And I, I manage um, the Triton Initiative, which is a marine energy um, environmental monitoring project. 
cool. Or DOE. Yeah. So cool. So definitely a variety (laughs) of different projects going on, very diverse kind of thing covering where you're working. Tell us a little more about the Triton Initiative. When did it start and what is it, what's its goal? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Triton Initiative is a, a Department of Energy Water Powers Technologies Office funded project. So we typically call them WPTO. So the project was funded in 2015 to support technology developers who were interested in building technologies to monitor the environment around marine energy devices. And so that's kind of how the Triton Initiative launched. And it's gone through several iterations. Um, Every three years, we get a merit review to kind of figure out what is the next step um, of the Triton Initiative. And so over the past three years, we have been looking at um, developing technology and um, technology and methods to monitor around the environment, around the marine energy devices. And so, so the reason that we need to do the environmental monitoring portion of this is really because um, there's not a lot of marine energy devices in the water right now. So the approach has really been like a precautionary approach to marine energy. And and I guess what I'd like to do is sort of bring this back and explain what marine energy is. Yeah. We hear, I feel like the term marine energy gets thrown around, especially when you're talking about like alternatives, uh, alternative types of like green energy. Like I feel like you hear marine energy and you're like, yeah, but like, what is marine energy? How do we harness it? Yeah. So marine energy is, um, is any energy that comes from waves, tides, or currents. And so it could be in the ocean, on a coastline, in a wetlands, and even rivers. So a lot of people don't think of a river being a place where a marine energy device will go, but you can think about the river flow. Those currents are fast and they produce lots of, they're like highly energetic. So it's a great place to put a marine energy device. Um, So what marine energy is not is offshore wind. (laughs) So we focus on everything, all of, all of the marine energy, um, except for offshore wind, which is even run by an entirely different part of the Department of Energy. They have a wind power technologies office that works with offshore wind. So it's even ran in our government differently here. So very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So marine energy can just be like the power of the waves and there's a way that you guys can harness that? Yeah, so my project does not focus on um, the actual production of energy by waves, tides, and currents. So what we do is actually um, build devices, technologies, and methods to understand the environmental impacts of the device. So kind of going back to the precautionary approach. So the government hasn't permitted these devices to go in. So there's very few in the water around the U.S. right now because they don't really understand how to permit them. Like what kind of um, data should be collected? What are the impacts? And so um, PNNL, the, the folks at Mackerel really have been tasked to figure out how to study these stressors. And we're, we're at the point now with the state of the science that came out last year that 
there are quite a few stressors that we can research. So like collision risk, underwater noise, electromagnetic fields, changes in habitat. And so we're, we're taking those four different stressors and designing and implementing commercial off the shelf environmental monitoring technology and other technologies to kind of figure out if we put a marine energy device in the water, what, what might happen with collision risk? And like, how, how could we even record a collision event? Like if a fish were to go through a turbine, like how do you even record that? And how do you actually know it was a fish that went through or a seal or, That's you know, making me laugh. Like, I know it's not funny, but just thinking of a fish, just getting like into this like turbine, I'm just like, oh, like it's one of those like, oh, Ouch. No. yeah. So the crazy thing is, is we have like in 10 years of research all over, all over the world, there has not been a single collision event recorded. Like no, no but yeah. So like, other um, countries around the world are just like putting these things in the water. They're like, let's just get on, um, you know, let's just start producing in clean energy, basically. Um, and so even their research is not showing any collision risks. So, yeah, so we are trying to work on, um, work on that technology that might be in integrated into a marine energy device or how do you collect that data yeah. while the device is operating to say, oh, we are continuing not to see any collision risk. And, and I mean, who's to say, maybe a fish does go through the turbine. So like, how would you mitigate that? Or like, what, how do you quantify that? So, yeah. So how are you guys doing that? Like, how are you doing this research? Are you trying to figure that out right now? Or like, where mm -hmm. do we stand? Yeah. So that's kind of the heart of Triton. And so there are, let's see, we, at PNL, over 69 people over this past year worked on some part of Triton. So our team is like gigantic. And awesome. if you go to the PNL website and look up Triton Initiative, um, you will see like our core research group under the Triton stories and kind of they talk like each one of the researchers has one of these core areas of collision risk, underwater noise changes in habitat, electromagnetic fields, our scientific dive team, all of these people who really make this happen for us. And so what each one of these researchers is doing is taking what is known about the current stressor and the different types of technology, echo sounders or hydrophones or grab samples or 360 cameras. There's all kinds of like ROVs and like underwater ROVs. And so there's a lot of different ways to test. And from all of these tests, what we want to do is create a set of recommendations for each one of these stressors and say, if you want to go test this, you can collect data with this technology device using this method. So like we even have like a magnetometer to read background electromagnetic fields versus electromagnetic fields produced by the cables that will be sending the energy back and forth to from the ocean to land. So oh, cool. yeah, so it's super cool. Yeah, like there's a lot of, it, there is a lot of technology out there. <laughs> yeah. So cool that there's so many different aspects that you have to look at it, but you guys have such a large team that you're able to look at all those different things and help it move mm -hmm. faster, help the project move a little faster. So potentially we can start to harness this energy on like a bigger scale, right? Right. 
Yeah. And some of the cool things, even right now, as we're looking at powering the blue economy, we're looking at like, how does a single device power a sensor in the ocean or power, you know, an autonomous vehicle or power, um, provide power to a hybrid ship so that maybe that one device is, you know, powering multiple things that could provide data. And maybe it's not like an array of marine energy devices right now. Maybe it's just these like single opportunities to provide power to very specific things so that we're powering buoys and we're powering things that, you know, also take fossil fuels to keep going. So um, this could also be a trade-off from, you know, using some solar out, out on the water as well. So looking at, you know, biofouling and corrosion and those sort of aspects too, because working in a salty environment um, takes a toll on technology in general. So we're kind of incorporating those aspects into um, what we're recommending as well. Absolutely. So going back to just marine energy in general for a second, what makes a good alternative, like compared to other um, green energies and then comparative to fossil fuels, like what makes marine energy work? And like, why is it a good choice? Yeah, that's a, a super good question. Um, well, one reason that marine energy is a really awesome renewable source of energy. So if you think of something being renewable, that it's going to continue. So like with fossil fuels, it's not renewable. Like there's an end point to where there's no more. But if you think about waves and currents and tides, like we know the tides change Um, they they even change strength throughout a month, right? Concurrent with like the moon cycles. And so waves, you know, storm waves and even waves coming in at different parts of the ocean are at different strengths. And, And we know that there's, you know, like the large currents throughout the world's oceans. And so we're starting to pinpoint very highly energetic wave sites and highly energetic tidal range sites. And so if we can understand, you know, these areas along our coastlines where we can, where we can put these devices, where, you know, these, obviously the devices are going to be, are going to be robust, right? Because we're looking for high energy. So pinpointing these areas um, is really important. And then being able to capture that energy and then um, and most likely an array. So something that will be multiple devices under the water that will cable energy. So it does, it doesn't, it, it, it's not going to be footprint free, but as far as a renewable source, we can continue to generate energy, energy from the waves and tides for a long time. And it's not exhaustible. Well, that makes Um, sense. Like those tides are happening anyways. Like Where I live right now, I'm in the Bay of Fundy, which is the highest tides in the entire world. Yeah. You're like how much power they have and like, don't be, don't get caught in the tides kind of thing. And to think about how that happens four times a day, roughly every day for how many years, like hundreds of years, thousands of years. And we haven't figured out how to harness that power yet, or we're working on it now, but it's so cool to know that like, you're using something that's going to be happening anyways. Like it's there. You might as yeah. well use it. It's not like, I feel like renewable isn't even like the accurate description of it. Like I know it yeah. is energy, but it's just like, it's not something that gets depleted and then fills up. Like it's just there. Yeah. That's yeah. So cool. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Like it is definitely like, yeah, it's hard to explain because it is like not really renewable. It just keeps generating. So it is. Yeah. And so, you know, like when you're thinking about the devices being able to like, you know, operate as the tide goes out and then switching the blade so that when the tide goes in, like even just having like, you know, thinking about these, the devices and the opportunities to kind of take advantage of the habitat that it lives in and, um, or that it will reside and produce power in, I guess. Um, so yeah, so the cool thing is, is we have opportunities to pinpoint these sites. Like you're talking about Bay of Fundy and like the, the energetic resource that we have there. And then you think about, okay, well, who lives here? Right. Like, okay. So we know there's a lot of, you know, from giant marine mammals and whales, probably all the way to like crabs and, you know, other benthic animals. And so you have to think about, you know, are they migrating? Are they seasonal? Do they live here year round? Are they going to use a device as like habitat itself? Um, so like, could there become its own like coral reef? Like all of these things have to be addressed about the device when it goes in. And so that's really what we're studying is like, once these devices go in, like, what is the current state? What's going to happen when we put it in? Like, what are even like the construction um, impacts of this? And then how do we get the data we need to permit it long-term? So like all of this data will combine to to produce these recommendations so that we can understand how to permit these devices and and get the data that's going to show us that we know how to mitigate any impacts or we know that there are no impacts. Yeah. So that is so interesting. Even you mentioning, like, I feel like there's a lot of like, not um, like not repercussions, but like things that are going to happen that I'm like, it's your job to think about them. But you mentioning like the coral reef, like in my head, it's just like one of those like ideal, like I remember in school, they're like, okay, just imagine everything happens in a vacuum. Like, nothing else matters. Like in my head, I'm like, oh, these pristine machines are going to go into the water and create energy, harness energy, and they're not going to be touched. Like they're going to stay perfect. But (laughs) no, like that doesn't happen in the ocean. Like the animals are going to find that. And so like to be able to make it sort of like, we've talked on this podcast before about like living coral reefs or like using Mm -hmm. man-made coral reefs. Like it would be so cool to kind of see how you can put that into the play here, like make a reef, but make it usable kind of thing. Yeah. Or even if that's, uh, even if, I mean, and there could be like negative impacts to that, right? Like, so there's like, do we want, so like biofouling is a, is a huge thing for devices out in the ocean. So it really limits the, um, the data that can be pushed through, um, it, it even like corrodes, um, different components and technology. So like biofouling is a huge, huge thing. And then also it's like, do we want to create this additional habitat? You know, like if we create this additional habitat, what's going to happen to the current species? And, you know, there was even one of the scientists is looking at like, are, are we going to, bring in invasive species and give them a place to attach like (laughs) and then you know impact the environment even further with the invasion of new species so it's really really interesting and there's so many like broad topics to explore um when it comes to comes to these devices and 
I think the U.S. is a little different um, because they are taking the precautionary approach and we're really trying to figure out the environmental impacts. But I also think right now with the current state of you know, climate change that more so like we need to expedite the opportunity to really look at how these devices can help us, whether it's, you know, one-off device providing data. Um, one of our really cool projects that we're, that the PI of Triton, his name is Joe Haxel and I are working on, it's not necessarily inside of Triton, but it's still related is um, building a tidal powered um, buoy. It's an acoustic buoy and it'll be set out in, in the Puget Sound to um, find orca. And so the endangered species that live here, the Southern residents, um, if we're able to detect them, um, the Department of Transportation in Washington is, is trying to quiet the sound. And so in one way to do that, the, they're um, building a mosquito fleet of ferries that are all electric. So these electric ferries will not produce sound, which is impacting the orca, but they also go very, very, very fast. And now people are concerned that there could be ship strike. And so yeah. with this tidal powered um, acoustic buoy, we'll be able to listen for the whales. And if they are around a specific ferry route, we'll be able to use like a cellular communication device because we're really close to Seattle and say, hey, ferry captain, at this buoy, we, we have detected these whales. And so then they can slow the ferry to um, a rate that is not dangerous to killer whale. That and so we, awesome. yeah. So if you think about it, like we can have these deployed for a very long time because there's like a little turbine sitting on the seafloor, just spinning, producing energy that's for these sensors that are on this buoy that are out there listening for whales. And then if they hear a whale, then it pings somebody like, hey, there's a whale. And then we do like this little check and Somebody says, oh yeah, that is, you know, J-Pod and, you know, hey, Captain, you know, J-Pod's there. So like, it's super cool to think about the different applications that these smaller marine energy devices. So it's like great to think about global energy generation, but also just these smaller applications are just so interesting. Yeah. And like for small, I'm doing air quotes right now, but that's pretty big. Like that's Maybe that's just because I'm a whale girl and I just love whales. But like that's yeah, a good thing me too. to be able to like slow those ships down just based on not visual or like human monitoring, but like an acoustic buoy that you don't have to take out and replace every so often. Like it just has a constant source of natural power. That's incredible. Yeah. And we want to try to place these um, turbines and in, in at depths where divers could go down and clean off biofouling, make sure that nothing is caught on them and, and, you know, put them in places where, you know, they hopefully they won't get like ghost nets and those yeah. sort of things and like be able to actually maintain and monitor them. And yeah, so we're just so excited about these different applications and, and how they could actually help, help us as, you know, be, be better humans in general. So like, not only would we be, you know, producing clean energy, we're just acting better in our environment. So yeah, so super awesome. Timeline wise, what do you think, like in an ideal world, when do you think 
marine energy would be used for something like that with the acoustic buoys and something like that on a large scale? Like, when do you think that's going to be kind of plausible? Like, obviously, a lot of work to be done with where you guys are like looking at the pros and cons kind of thing. Ideally, what would you think? Yeah, so we have we have done almost all the research already, field research for the four stressors that I mentioned. We have one more test around the cow wave. Um, it's a wave energy converter that's being tested um, off the Scripps Institution of Oceanography's um, Ellen Browning Memorial Pier. And so that cow wave um, WEC is, is testing for the first time. So it's gonna go underwater there. And cow wave as, as a company has been super awesome. They are allowing us to actually go conduct um, conduct our research for changes in habitat. So we're gonna be deploying a 360 degree camera to look at the moorings, to look at scouring around the mooring and how that might change the habitat. And then we're deploying some acoustic buoys to record the actual device because one of the concerns is that these devices will be operating in a range that marine mammals talk to each other. So like, so we have to do, we have to record that and understand like what that is. And then, um, there's other devices um, up in Alaska at the Tanana River. We've conducted re research at the Tanana River site with our partners at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And we've also conducted some collision risk at the tidal turbine. Um, so we did collision risk studies up there. And then we did collision risk and underwater noise studies at the University of New Hampshire's Living Bridge in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So we did a lot this year to actually start collecting data around the devices that are available. And um, so a lot of these devices are going either, there's other devices going in at the wave energy test site at um, that the US Navy operates in Hawaii. So there's a bunch of um, different types of wave energy converters. And then the pack wave test site off the coast of Oregon um, just received their like 25 year test bed permit. And so this will give a lot of opportunities for different wave energy converters to test there. And so they are laying cables and starting to put in um, kind of like if you think of an energy socket in your wall, they're laying these lines and they're putting out those sockets now. And so hopefully by 2024 or 2023, we'll be able to start testing a variety of, of of other devices at that site as well. So awesome. these are coming. Um, and then just like our little device I was telling you with like the, the Southern resident, um, we are prototyping and um, building out that um, prototype now. And um, we will we will have um, like a prototype to put in the water probably within the next year, year and a half or so. That so I think so cool. I'm still blown yeah. away by that one. And that's not something that is specific to that location. Like I know the Gulf of St. Lawrence, also near where I am. Uh, actually, a previous water woman, one of my friends, Gina, she's doing research on the North Atlantic right whales up in uh, the St. Lawrence, Gulf of St. Lawrence. And oh, cool. Acoustic monitoring. So to be able to have like, marine power like that like that's not something specific to one area like that's something that can be put to use in so many different areas so I'm so excited so you said you're prototyping that right now yeah yeah and that would be like the goal is to be able to you know use these types of um devices in more places to help 
with ship strike or with um, helping with fishing or helping with, I mean, there's like so many different things, whale watching. Um, there's a lot of uses that where we can, you know, identify whales in an area and help to um, have less of an anthropogenic impact on, on their livelihoods because typically, typically most whales, um, in an area are migratory, like they're, they're not, they're only there seasonally. So it's like, how do we work with them while they're in this area? Cause you know, they're, they're giants. <laughs> so if someone was listening to this and was like, okay, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard, which they all should be thinking and wanted <laughs> to go into this field, what would be your piece of advice for a young girl who was like, this is what I want to do? Yeah. Um, okay. So hold on. I actually wrote down a bunch of things. So like, I'm just going to pick a few that I wrote down here. <laughs> um, well, just so you know, I had no, when I started um, managing this project, I had no idea what marine energy was. So, um, yeah, so it's been a huge learning curve for me because I guess this kind of goes to like the first point I want to make is like, this is such a cool emerging industry that literally if you want to start in marine energy in any part of the industry, like whether it's research or environmental monitoring or permitting or you know engineering, like whatever part you most are interested in marine energy, like if you start publishing a paper and you get supported for your master's or PhD in this, like your name's going to be one of the first people ever published in this section. Like you can start really building an entire career because it's just so new. Yeah. So like, it's kind of, I mean, there, there is data out there and like I say that we haven't been doing this for a while, but it's just like one of those like cool opportunities right now where you can really niche out a place for yourself and be the first if like that's something you're super inspired about in the world is having your name out there I know that's like something with like Instagram and all these other things that people really enjoy so if you're really into that but if you just like marine energy and you want to be part of something cool that's happening there are so many awesome teams um but what I would say is Find one of those topics that you love about marine energy, whatever it is inside of that industry that you love, um, and then seek out an internship. So all of, most of the 17 labs under DOE are doing something with marine energy. I mean, there's like a top three lab, like Los Alamos, NREL, and, um, and PNL that, that are working on this. So we have a lot of partnerships with sister laboratories, but I would say PNNL is probably one of the lead um, and NREL is one of the leads in marine energy. So reach out to anybody working in marine energy at one of these national laboratories. Um, all of the internships that you can get through this will be paid. So like, I don't know if you're familiar with marine mammal research, but like if you're an intern in that area, you never get paid. Yeah, no. <laughs> So, yeah. So working at a national laboratory, you will get paid for your internship. And if you do a super spectacular job and like hit it out of the park, most likely they're going to ask you to return. And most likely they're going to ask you like, or, you know, even if you want to return, there's always going to be an open door for you at a laboratory. So that's really cool. So reach out to anybody in marine energy at these laboratories, ask for an internship, 
And then if you're kind of wondering what skills you need to have, um, data analysis, software, hardware development, sensor integration, biological methods development, report writing, proposal writing, um, working on research vessels, like so having that boat time, super important. And then understanding the, the marine environment. So if you are, if you want to become an electrical, mechanical, or physical engineer, you really need to understand how do we put these devices into this salty environment? Like once things get wet, like electrical standards change and safety and mechanical standards change. Safety is totally a different level of concern when you put stuff in a water and, and then know how to program, know a lot of different programs and know how to program in, in different programs. Um, and most of the people I work with are engineers and scientists. So you can find a lot of their publications out there and start reading about it. Um, and then always asking somebody, how, how do I get involved? Tell me about your work and having community, like just communicating with them and, and similar to what we're doing right now. So just ask somebody, they love to talk about what they're doing. I love that. That's all fantastic advice. I feel like it is really important. Like, I feel like a lot of times the advice on here is always very good advice, but is usually like, go for it. Like you can do it. And I really like that this is like head out of the clouds, like be like, have these skills. You need <laughs> some skills. You need to put the work in. And I love that advice because it's so important. You can't just, yeah. I mean, you should always apply to jobs that you're not, that you might not be fully qualified for, but have some qualifications, man, like do the work. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And it's amazing. So at our, at the Coastal Science Division here at Mackerel, our two upper managers are women. Um, on my team of like main, if you go onto the Triton website and look at um, our science team, you will see um, we have four task leads that are like our um, electromagnetic field task lead, our changes in habitat task lead, our communication task lead, and then we have um, some environmental monitoring scope, like a whole campaign. Um, all four of those tasks are ran by women. And these are all engineers and scientists. Um, three of them have PhDs. The, um, one of them has, um, is on her way to a master's. So these are amazing women working in all of these like hardcore engineering topics. So don't be like kind of the go for it thing is don't be afraid to do engineering and don't be afraid to be a scientist. Like you, you got this, like Absolutely. there's so many qualified women that are doing this. So yeah. Be the next one. I love it. Be the next one. Come join us in Marine <laughs> energy. We need more good people. <laughs> um, is there anywhere on social media people can follow along with the Triton initiative or yourself personally? Yeah, sure. So um, you can follow the Triton Initiative um, on all of the PNNL websites. So our PNNL comms team is amazing. They completely support our project. So PNNL is the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and they are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And then um, you can go to our website. It's pnnl.gov backslash projects, backslash Triton, so long, but <laughs> that's where you can find us. And then um, for me personally, um, I like to connect professionally on LinkedIn. So Alicia Amerson 
is um, where you find me and you'll see my connections to PNNL on there. And I'm, I'm happy to connect anytime on, on LinkedIn. Perfect. And that will all yeah. be linked down in the bio of the podcast as well. Alicia, thank you yeah. so much for joining me today. It was absolutely awesome to get to talk to you. And I've learned so much about the marine energy field. And honestly, like a few minutes ago, I was like, could I like, I could go into this field now. Like I've been so inspired. So I really hope that some of the people listening are. Oh my gosh, Jill. Yes, do it. We want you to come join us. Like the more, the merrier. So it would be wonderful to have you. I think you should totally do it. I love it. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.